open up in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6. We are walking our way in the sermon series through Ezra and then into Nehemiah. And I've called this series God at Work. The powerful way that God worked in the lives and the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've been looking at the first six chapters or so in Ezra, kind of catching up with some history that's going to bring us up to Ezra's time when he begins to tell us what's going on in his own ministry, in his own lifetime. But I want you to think for a moment, maybe a time you've been at a children's birthday party or Christmas celebration, and you see a child get that that super fancy gift, that toy that just has incredible blinking LED lights. It's got motors that move different things. It's got realistic sounds, maybe beautiful music, just cutting edge technology. And the child, in such excitement, rips open the box, pulls out the things. Well, first you have to untwist all the little twisty ties, and then you pull out the thing. And the child hits the power button, and nothing happens. And as a parent, you start scrounging through all the packaging, start looking in the box, is there anything that was missed? And then as dread settles upon the depths of your soul, you start reading the box and you find those three words you don't want to see, batteries not included. (laughs) Thus begins a frantic search throughout all of the house. Every junk drawer is pulled out and turned upside down. Every cupboard is open, every box is opened, trying to find that battery. Oh, you have smaller batteries. You have bigger batteries. You don't have that battery. And so the toy sits in a corner while the child sobs and promises up and down, we will go to the store and get the batteries as soon as as possible. But the toy, in the meanwhile, is useless. It's missing something vitally important. Today in Ezra chapter 6, verses 13 to 22, we're going to see that in this amazing passage where God does amazing things and the people's hard work pays off, at the heart of all of it, there is something missing that I think is key to understanding how Ezra applies to us today. Now, just to catch you up in some of the background here, God calls his people, Israel, into relationship through Abraham. They find themselves in Egypt, enslaved, and then God rescues them. He draws them out of Egypt. We call that the exodus, the leaving of Egypt into the wilderness. There he has them set up the tabernacle, this place he will meet with them and they will enact their relationship with him through the blood of animals sacrificed for their sins over and over again. He gives them his law. He brings them through the wilderness into the promised land and things are hmm, okay for a while. They end up falling away and being disobedient. He warns them time and time again to come back and yet they run after other things. And eventually they are taken into exile by foreign powers. And that's where Ezra and Nehemiah picks up the story. In exile, God's people 
are led by God to return home. And God raises up these foreign leaders that allow this to happen. And so this group returns home at the beginning of Ezra, and their goal is to build the temple. That's what the first six chapters of Ezra are all about, the building of the temple, eventually under this leader whose name is Zerubbabel. And he leads the people through many trials, through many struggles, Many times of enemies attacking them, enemies getting government officials to turn against them, long periods of of the temple lying there with nothing being done because they're not allowed to work on it. And eventually God raises up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to call them back to obedience. Build the temple. God says, trust me. So they do it. They keep going. The enemies send this frantic letter to the the foreign emperor king darius at this point in persia and they say look what they're doing you need to stop this and he sends a letter back not only are you not to stop it but you guys need to pay for what they're doing because i've done a careful record in the historical archives and that's the arrangement that was made and so that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 6. Let me read 13 through 15 for us. We did cover this last week, but we need to introduce it again as the temple is finished. Then, because of the decree King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, easy to say, and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now. Here we have, after about 20 years of work, many delays, many struggles, we have this temple completed. This place that was the centerpiece of their relationship with God, where God's glory would dwell among his people, where they could come and offer sacrifice in worship to him. And we looked at earlier in Ezra, How when they laid the foundation of the temple, some people were cheering and just overjoyed. Meanwhile, there was a whole group that was mourning and weeping. And they couldn't even tell the difference between the crying and the shouts of joy. They were both so loud because some of them looked at the shape and the outline of the foundation and said, it's so little. It's so much smaller than the old one used to be. It's so insignificant. In fact, not only does this temple end up being so much smaller, some say even as much as half as tall as Solomon's temple, it is much less ornate. Simple. Solomon's temple was overlaid with gold in a lot of places. Beautiful artwork just decked out all over with expensive, precious decorations. as fitting their Lord God Almighty. And they're looking at this one going, it's so much less. It is amazing that the temple is finished, that God leads his people to this point and they do it. And this is the culmination of Zerubbabel's ministry here in chapter six of Ezra. And I told you at the beginning of this sermon series, we have these grand crescendos in these chapters. And then each one, there's three segments, two in Ezra and one in Nehemiah. Each one leads up to this huge crescendo. And at the top of it is this horrible disappointment. And that's what we're going to see here because something is missing. Let's pick it up 
verses 16 through 22. And understand that up to this point, they have been following carefully a pattern. They have been making sure all of their actions, all their activities, all of their work has been done appropriately in line with what their ancestors did in the Exodus. How they built the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. The sacrifices they did. The way they protected the purity of the temple. They've been doing everything in line with that pattern. And here they are at the culmination of their hopes and hard work. And they are going to dedicate through a, a ceremony Just like what happened, they're going to dedicate this temple to the Lord God. Let's read verses 16 through 18. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what was written in the book of Moses. And there it is, according to what is written in the book of Moses. They wanted to do everything right. They knew what disobedience had cost their people. They wanted to be obedient to the Lord. And so here they have this dedication ceremony. All of these animals sacrificed, just like their ancestors had done. Now, admittedly, it's much less significant than what their ancestors had done. Their celebration was much greater, but this is a ragtag group of survivors that are coming together and saying, we're going to do it right this time. But there's something missing from this passage. That when I studied Ezra and Nehemiah, I thought, wait a minute, what about this? I'm expecting that, and I'm sure as they followed the pattern of their ancestors, everything led up to the dedication of the temple, and then something amazing happened. And we need to look at that. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 to 34, they set up the tabernacle. And this is what happens. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All of Israel standing around this, this finish. This is a tent. It's a temporary temple. Mobile. And they're all standing there going, okay, we've we've done it appropriately the way God says. And now we've set it all up. We've done the sacrifices. What's going to happen? And the visible glory of God descends and fills the tabernacle to the point the priest can't even enter the building because the glory of God is there. Profound. Let's skip ahead because later... As they move into Israel and they settle down, they still are using the tabernacle in Jerusalem, but eventually they build a more permanent structure, the temple. Solomon does this. And this is what happens when they dedicate the temple. First Kings 8, 10 through 11. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Look back at Ezra chapter 6. All of this leads up to the grand conclusion. They have built the temple and God's glory is supposed to come into the temple as the ultimate sign that he is among his people and with them. Tell me in Ezra chapter 6 when God's glory descends into that temple. And the answer is you won't find it because it doesn't. Could you imagine the people just standing there? They finish their celebration service going, 
Now what? God, what now? Something is missing in this passage that they would have expected to be there based on their history. The glory of God and his presence among his people is so important to them. 1 Samuel chapter 15 uh, verse 29 describes it this way. He who is the glory of Israel. He who is the glory of Israel, he goes on to say, does not lie or change his mind for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. But listen to that phrase. He who is the glory. They understood that God's presence, God's glory was their glory. If they were significant, it's because God dwelt with them. And so they build this temple in obedience. And God's glory does not enter into this temple Let's go on in the passage, verses 19 to 22. They begin to use the temple as they would normally. They celebrate the Passover. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And I do want to point out kind of a side note here. If you look at verse 21, because Ezra and Nehemiah has unfortunately been used throughout the years to justify among God's people a sense of racism. That somehow God hated people that weren't Jewish. And and they go to these passages where, yes, there is judgment on some of the non-Jewish people. But I want to point out something very important. Verse 21, it says, So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, the Passover feast, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. Those are Gentiles celebrating the Passover. Because they believed in the God of Israel. Because they wanted to worship the God of Israel. God is not racist. But he is absolutely secure and strong in his statement that if you are going to come to him, you must come through the means he provides, not your own ways. It's not enough to simply be religious. We need to come through the ways that God has given us. You cannot support racism in scripture. The texts are there. Side note, but I think it's important to make sure because this comes up time and time again. So here they are. Again, they're following a pattern. Able to be obedient. And part of their obedience are these rituals that God had commanded throughout the year. These sacrifices. In this case, it was to celebrate the Passover. Remembering when they left Egypt and how God saved them out of it. But again, there is something missing. See, one of the most important holy days in the Jewish calendar is the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they slaughtered a sacrifice, and the high priest took the blood of that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, that's where the glory of God would dwell. And it was over the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now, I want to go back. If you can just turn one page to Ezra chapter 1, verse 7. We read that before they leave Persia, King Cyrus, who was the king at that time, brings out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. They leave Persia with the stuff that had been stolen from the first temple. And they get it back, most of it. You see, there's a problem. The Ark of the Lord is missing. We know throughout history, they did not have the Ark of the Lord any longer. Nobody knows what happened to it. But we do know it was not in the temple that Zerubbabel built. Understand the importance of the Ark. It's a chest. It was about the size of a standard office desk. Had two long poles for carrying it. They weren't allowed to touch the Ark itself. It was considered so holy. Inside the chest of the ark were the Ten Commandments, the law of God that he had written and given to Moses. Other things are occasionally mentioned as being in there or sometimes mentioned as being on the floor by them, the budding, uh, the staff of Aaron that had budded in the jar of manna. But what we know was absolutely for certain inside the ark was the law, the Ten Commandments. God's glory would dwell above the cherubim. You see the two angelic beings with their their wings outstretched there. He would dwell above that. And that cover of the ark was called the mercy seat. What a beautiful name. The mercy seat. And there once a year on that mercy seat, that cover, is where the blood of the sacrifice would be applied to pay for the sins of the people of Israel. And to cleanse the tabernacle of all defilement so that the glory of God could continue to dwell there. And I love this picture. God's glory over the law. And the law defines and describes that we are sinners. That's all the law can do is point out our sin. You have the presence of God, this thing that points out our sin. And right there in the middle, the sacrifice is applied that covers our sin. It's like God wanted to tell us, don't miss this. When I look down and I see your sin, I'm looking through the blood of a sacrifice that was given for you and that saves you. But now understand something. Zerubbabel's temple had no ark. There was nothing else in the Holy of Holies except the ark. The Holy of Holies was the center of the temple and at the center of the temple that these people build is an empty Room, there's nothing there. That's where the ark should have been, but it is empty. To understand how profound this is, there's a place in scripture where the ark is captured, later returned, but it helps us to know just how important this was and what it meant to the people to not have the ark. The story is that the Israelites have gone into battle. And they take the ark with them. God had at various times in the past told them to take the ark into battle as a symbol of him being with them. But in this case, he didn't tell them. They kind of took it as a good luck token. And guess what? They lost and the ark is captured. The sons of the high priest are killed. When the message comes back to the high priest that his sons had died, he is really sad. When he learns the ark has been captured, he falls down dead overcome with grief. As if times weren't bad enough, the wife of one of the high priest's sons is pregnant and she goes into labor and she gives birth to a son and the people want to know what name she's going to give this child. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 21, she says this, 
She named the boy Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed. The ark has been captured and she links that with the glory of God and says the glory of Israel has left. Let's go back to Ezra and understand what this meant for the people in the ongoing use of this temple. They still did the Day of Atonement. I searched Jewish records and archives and historical documents and people that wrote about historical documents saying, how did they do the Day of Atonement when there's no Ark of the Covenant to apply the blood to? Did they just stop? No, they didn't stop. Jewish tradition holds that they carried the blood of the sacrifice into that empty room and poured it on the floor where the Ark should have been. And every year that high priest would have had a reminder. Something is missing. Something is missing. Because God's glory has departed. The ark of the Lord with the mercy seat where the sacrifice should be applied is gone. Understand what this means, friends. God commanded his people to build a temple he knew well in advance he was not going to dwell in. He commanded this. This was not a mistake on their part. He wanted them to do this. God's presence, God's glory would not be in that temple. God's way of forgiving their sins would not be in that temple. So why would God create them to build an empty, hollow temple? Because something better was coming. And God was at work preparing them for something better that was coming. This temple would stand for over 400 years before a horrible man named Herod, absolute pagan, horrible guy, killed lots and lots of Jewish people. Then one day he decides to appease them and he renovates this temple, same temple. He makes it much more majestic. He makes it beautiful inside and out. But that temple is still empty. That's the temple that was present when Jesus is born. That empty temple would become something amazing. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we are told about Mary. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God's way of providing salvation. Matthew 1.23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, the presence of God with his people. One day, Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus into Herod's temple. This temple that was empty on the inside that the glory of God was not dwelling in and there was no way to provide for the salvation of his people. They take Jesus to that temple. And there's a man there. And his name is Simeon. And we are told he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. God, this thing that's missing, when are you going to fill it? This thing that we're longing for, when are you going to bring it? When are you going to fulfill your promises? And that man, Simeon, takes Jesus in his arms and listen to what he says. Sovereign Lord, 
As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon is holding this fragile baby and saying the glory of God has returned to the temple. He's holding this baby and saying, God, your way of saving your people has returned to this temple. The purpose for which Zerubbabel built this temple is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's God at work. For over a thousand years, God had been at work preparing for this moment, teaching the people about the tabernacle and then the temple and the need for salvation, the need for a sacrifice to be given. And for 400 years, he had them build an empty temple and perform empty rituals there so that they were ready when Jesus came. Because Jesus is the thing that is missing. Jesus comes and is the one who saves and is God with us and he's brought into the temple and the temple finds its true purpose the glory of god is there and the way of salvation is there and we can declare in absolute certainty god's work never fails never maybe not in our lifetime will we see the fulfillment maybe not in our children's lifetime but god is at work and that work never fails This is not just a profound historical truth. Do you ever feel like something's missing in your own life? How easy do we get in situations kind of like the temple in Ezra's day? And maybe for you, you're looking at your life and you're saying, I'm not very impressive. I'm not very flashy, but I'm just working really hard. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just trying to do my best, just trying to be obedient in and out of season. I'm just trying, but in your heart, you feel something is missing. Maybe you're more like Herod's temple. Oh, you look really good on the outside. Your attendance at church is impeccable. Your singing is spot on key, even with four-part harmony in one voice, which is impossible, but you can do it. <laughs> You've served in every committee, gone to every Bible study. You're the one, the first one here every time the door opens, last one here when they close. You are here. Oh, you look good. But you look at your own heart, and in moments of honesty, you say, something's missing. There's, there's an emptiness there that something should be filling at the heart of who you are, at your very core, is something missing. Because that's the place where Jesus should be sitting on his throne in your life. That's the place of Jesus. And we can cover it up with any gold and fancy artwork or any fancy religious activities or any self-made ideas. We can try to cover it up and ignore it and just keep on going. But God has designed His truth throughout history to prove to us you need Jesus on the throne of your life and nothing else will do. Something is missing. That's the place that you should be able to look to say, my God is with me. That's the place you should be able to look to say, I know I'm saved because my Savior died in my place. That's that place in us that we should be able to look to say, my Jesus, it is on his throne. 
Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because if you have not, please hear me, something is missing in your life. Not just something, the most important thing about you is missing. And God wants you to have Jesus at the center of your life. To say, I am a sinner. He died in my place. His sacrifice pays for my sins. He is the glory of God that wants to live in me, that I can be his people. I can be among him and with him, and he is with me. And that's the reason I was created. That's missing from your life if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. That's what you're missing out on. But maybe for some of you, you have accepted Jesus. And at one time, he was the center of your life. But maybe now you're looking at your life and saying, yeah, I I think he's kind of been moved into a storage room for a while. And I've let other things kind of build up and clutter the space. And other things have come in and become more important. And you need to come back and say, God, I want your son Jesus to be at the center of my life. I don't want the most important thing about me to be an empty, hollow room. I want it to be the throne of Jesus, my Savior. And you need to come back to Christ. And he's waiting there with open arms, longing to come in and be with you. Is something missing in your life? It is a question we are terrified so often to answer. But it is such an important question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these historical texts from a time that is so different from ours, a people group that is so foreign to us, building a temple that that isn't something that we even deal with anymore, it's easy to dismiss these things. And yet, because you are God and you have never changed, you were at work in a powerful way. And there are lessons to be learned from these things. And God, we know throughout Scripture, you long to be with your people. You long to save your people through the power of the means of salvation that you provide. And you have given us the best way of salvation ever, the only ultimate way of salvation through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are so privileged to live on this side of the cross, to see those promises fulfilled in your son, Jesus. And God, I'm sure there are people here today that if they're honest and they're truly willing to look at their own hearts, they would be able to say something is missing. And I pray then that the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, the powerful truth about Jesus Christ would come in and help them to see that what they're missing is their Savior, Jesus Christ. That they would accept you in the life that you offer and the forgiveness through your Son. That they would accept you and your glorious presence in their life. God, we don't need an Ark of the Covenant anymore. We don't need a Holy of Holies. You are with us, each and every one of us, if we are saved by Jesus Christ. We are the temples walking around, displaying your presence for all to see. But Father, like the people of old, we are easily distracted. And we are all too easily satisfied with lesser things. So if there's clutter that we've built up around those places in our life that should belong to Jesus alone, I pray that you would wipe it away. 
that you would reset our priorities and help us to submit to your authority in our life. And that Jesus Christ would be the center of everything that we do because he is ultimately what we all need. And may he not be missing in our lives or in our church or in our world. In your name we pray, amen.